You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Like I just tweet and Instagram pictures of my dead bones for people who want to see. Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields. On today's episodes, we will be discussing all things zooarchaeology. Joining me for this discussion are Emily Long and Alex Fitzpatrick. Thanks for joining me today, ladies. It's amazing to have you. Happy to be here. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, Alex, yes. since this is your first time on the podcast, can you just give a real brief introduction about who you are and what you do? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm uh, Alex Fitzpatrick. I'm a PhD student in uh, Bradford, the University of Bradford in England. Um, as you can tell by my accent, I'm American. Um, my specialty is zooarchaeology. I mostly work in Scotland. And uh, yeah, that's basically me. Awesome. So for those people who are listening who may not be familiar with zooarchaeology, just do a real brief intro. Like, what is zooarchaeology? So you're and like, why it's important. Right. One minute elevator pitch. Oh, I got to do in 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, study of dead animals. There you go. Okay. <laughs> wow. It's like two seconds. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it, yeah, that's it. Like, <laughs> is there a specific time frame um, for zooarchaeology in terms of like, is there um, a different set of uh, zooarchaeology for like really early, I don't know, like Pliocene type animals to um, what we see in more prehistoric contexts? Like, is there a larger range for zooarchaeology or is it very specific? Well, I think once you get to like, you know, stuff like that, like especially like dinosaurs and stuff, that's paleontology more. There's probably like a, a, a midsection between paleontologists and zooarchaeologists that I can't even, I don't even know about. But um, we do kind of cross over a little bit, like specifically my field right now, I'm working with uh, animals from the Neolithic. So long time ago, but ne not necessarily that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Right. And I would imagine that there's some regional uh, knowledge that's required. Like, I can't imagine that someone who works in, you know, a warm, swampy place who has alligators and crocodiles and all the things that hang out in swamps that I prefer not to think about um, would necessarily be able to transplant to Scotland or vice versa because they're not animals that you're familiar with. Oh yeah, like that's actually like a really big problem as an American doing uh, zooarchaeological studies here is every so often I'll kind of, if like I'm IDing uh, some bones and I'm like, I think it's uh, this, and then I'll have to ask everyone to be like, is this actually local to Scotland? Because I don't know. Like we had this very long conversation mm -hmm. the other day where I wasn't sure if uh, wolves actually were in Scotland. <laughs> Uh, which sounds yeah, I think dumb. that's a legitimate question. <laughs> well, it turns yeah. out they went extinct in like the 18th century, I think. So it wasn't a dumb question. Right. Depending on what time period you're working in, like the answer is yes or no. Yeah. And there's like definitely like obviously there's different animals that you work with. Like I have um, in my assemblage right now, I have some great auk uh, bones, which is an extinct, like kind of like a puffin type bird, which obviously I wouldn't find necessarily, you know, working in like the Southwest America or something. So, um, right. It's definitely like a learning curve, especially for someone who isn't really familiar with what kind of animals. Like, I think the other day I asked my boyfriend if they had squirrels here, which is really silly. <laughs> no, but I, I don't know no. either. So it's like, is there a different well, he kind like, or do they, or do he like looked at me and he was like, yeah, haven't you seen them? They're everywhere. <laughs> so I'm just... I right, just but that doesn't mean that they were around in the Neolithic. Yeah, I mean, I didn't find any scroll bones. I was just asking a genuine question because I was wondering if there were squirrels. <laughs> and I've lived here like two and a half years now, so you'd think I'd know. But you don't always pay attention to it, you know? Yeah, you know, I paying attention to what's on my phone, you know, millennials, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So are there uh -huh. any like major animal types that you see that you've been working with that are also in the United States 
at the, around the same time frame, or is it like just so totally different because of just two completely separate areas? Or is there some similarities that you're seeing from the time frame you're looking at? Well, um, fish-wise, there's some similarities um, because Scotland, and I also work uh, sometimes in the Orkney Islands, which is uh, an island that's uh, right up north of Scotland and between Scotland and Norway, more or less. Um, oh, since wow. it's all part of the Atlantic, um, we have very similar fish that you'll see in like parts of Canada and northern parts of the Americas. So, uh, it's like cod, it's always cod, cod everywhere. <laughs> I'm so sick of cod. Tangent. <laughs> Tangent number one, you don't happen to know um, Ruth Ann Marr, do you? Who also works in the Orkneys? Yeah. I know Ruth. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've met her at a conference, and I was trying to, to do some uh, work in some papers in Iceland, and she did her dissertation on bioarchaeology in Iceland. Yeah, it's a whole NABO, uh, the North Atlantic uh, Bio, was it North Atlantic Bio cultural organization i think is what it stands for yeah it's uh tom McGovern. oh my god yeah tom mcgovern i went to hunter college from my undergrad so i know tom yeah he's just everywhere there's like five people who uh, all work in that group so we all know each other um i don't know if they'll ever remember me but like i know all of them right i mean that's Kind of how it always is for people who are starting out, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, ping-ponging between names. I mean, um, that's how I actually got to University of Bradford, because at Hunter College, there's a study abroad where you go with a bunch of other CUNY students to uh, the Orkneys to dig, and that was my first excavation. And that's how I met people from the University of Bradford, realized I really liked it, and decided to move here for my uh, master's, now my PhD. Um, nice. Yeah, I also did my master's in the UK, and it's definitely an amazing place. Yeah, especially because it's cheaper to do your master's here. <laughs> uh, so much. Unfortunately, they don't really, or at least my experience was they don't fund people for uh, PhDs. Oh, no, this is, well uh, this is a self-funded student loan-based PhD, man. Right. Mm-hmm. Um Anyways, that's like entirely off the topic. <laughs> but it's important to know because I mean, if listeners, you're interested in getting a master's, UK is a good way to go. It is. It's yeah, and a, and a lot of times they're shorter. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah, know I people who get them done in a year. Yeah, mine was a year program, yeah, which is super intense, wow. especially because I was going from the humanities because I my undergrad degree was in classical archaeology and anthropology uh, to archaeological sciences masters. Uh, so it was really intense, but honestly, it was so worth it. Nice. But uh, to to get back on track, <laughs> so dead animals. Not that tangents aren't fun, but uh, so you're mentioning you know codfish bones and that kind of thing. When people think of archaeology, it seems they tend to think more of you know like sexy artifacts, you know, like, ooh <laughs> spear point, ooh pottery. Why are animal bones, do you think they're as just as important as these, you know, the artifacts that are the stereotypical things that people think of archaeology? Is it as important, more important? Like, why, what is that makes zoo archaeology so important in archaeology? Oh, I'll throw down the gauntlet right now. I think it's more important than all that artifact stuff. Anyone, any other uh, ceramics people, y'all can come at me. Oh man. I think pottery's boring. You know what? I hated my classics <laughs> degree. I hated pottery. Don't come to me with all that typology <laughs> stuff. Oh my god, it's so boring. If that to hear about geometric pottery one more time, I'm gonna explode. <laughs> I feel you. I really, really do. But like uh, I'm a bioarchaeologist. Yeah, so, so yeah, same page. So much cooler. I like but pottery. Like, <laughs> God. It's okay, Emily. We love you. Yeah, anyways, so, you know what? We could be wrong sometimes. It's all right. But what is but it really that makes important. it so important? Like, what does it? Um, and I'm not. It's not a challenge by any stretch. I'm not like what no, makes no. it important. It's like seriously. Like, what? What can for our listeners? What does zooarchaeology tell us about the past? Well, the thing that I really like about zooarchaeology is that um, I feel like animal bones actually touch so much of the past realistically because you can 
use animal bones to look at the environment. You can look at animal bones and see what you can extrapolate from human activity, that relationship between humans and animals. Like, I don't know. I feel like the thing about zooarchaeology that really drew me to it is that it kind of touched a lot of interests I had growing up. So biology studies, uh, cultural studies, things like that. So right. Well, and I think a lot of people forget and, you know, easily. Um, I mean, self-included. Uh, I'm a pescatarian, so like I don't interact with meat ever. <laughs> um, but people forget in the past that acquiring food wasn't, hey, I, you know, went to the grocery store down the street and picked up something that, you know, sitting on a piece of styrofoam covered in plastic wrap mm-hmm. that, you know, you were going and hunting what was local and what was around. Um, and because, you know, sustainability, like a subsistence, people don't have that same kind of not like, do I have money to go to the grocery store? But like, will there be animals that I can hunt that I could find? That connection is a, is a little bit broken and a little bit harder to make from modern Western society because it's not something that most of us are ever exposed to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I would even go f- as far as to say that even past that, you know, as someone who does eat meat, um, sometimes I have to remember that, you know, the way we use meat and the way people in the past use meat are totally different because, I mean, they would use everything. So, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of bones that have these, you know, uh, percussion notches, which are basically uh, impact marks from when they were hit by tools because people were trying to get the marrow out of the bone because they want everything that they can get from the uh, animal. So it's kind of like just like realigning your thinking uh, as well. I mean, that's like all of archaeology is realigning the way you think so that you can be as close as possible with your interpretations but that's fascinating yeah. do you also look at um so not just the bones themselves you're saying how they're you've seen the percussion marks do you look at the processing um factors as well like how the animal would have been processed based on the cut marks breakage and so forth yeah i mean uh, we'll probably talk about this later because this is like the big bulk of my phd research but um Ooh. yeah i, I I mean, it's, it is, uh, this is like the little nitty gritty stuff that I think some people who may not, you know, be familiar with zooarchaeology realize that this is the kind of information you can extrapolate from animal bones, uh, looking at butchery marks. Um, what else am I looking at? Uh, charring to see if they were cooked, if they were put near a fire. I mean, you can go as far as, uh, I think with scanning electron microscopy sometimes, you can even look at the, uh, burning and see, you know, just what temperature. It was at by like the color and by some of the like micro uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. You can go pretty intense with it. Basically. You, that's really cool. There have been some other really interesting studies. There's a guy, um, Will Taylor. He just got his PhD within the last year, year and a half. Uh, he's actually, I believe, doing a postdoc at Max Planck right now. And he worked in Mongolia on domestication of horses and at what point we can say not only have we you know domesticated horses so that we could herd them but what were the uh, cranial or like skull modifications that came along with putting a, a bridle and a bit in a horse's mouth for for driving for plowing oh, for riding yeah. that's um, cool i have not read his you know hundreds of pages <laughs> dissertation bad chelsea um <laughs> but you know so you can also learn about the origins of, you know, human relationship with certain animals and certainly when humans domesticated horses and started using them for transport and mobility. I mean, the amount of distance you can cover on a horse in one day is so much greater than the amount of distance that a a human can cover on foot in one day. Mm -hmm. So looking at some of those major shifts. And then in that point, um, seeing uh you can also use animal remains to kind of get a feel for the belief systems of people like um around where i'm working in so like the later prehistoric in britain um you know horses were 
what we think is horses were seen as high status because of basically what you just said, the fact that they can get you from one place to another so quickly, you know, things like that. So you get to, you see, I think there's a PhD student actually at our university right now who's doing her research on horse burials because you get horse burials and horse and chariot burials a lot, especially in the Yorkshire Mm. area where I live. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot you can extrapolate from animal bones. And is yeah, it fun, sure. too, would, when you can connect it with other types of artifacts and whatnot? Like, sorry, it's just quick, quick example. That's my favorite example. Um, <laughs> there's this site at um, Navajo National Monument, um, Puebloan, ancestral Puebloan site, and there's um, rock art images of turkeys. And right below it, there are turkey pins that are still coming out of the ground. Like, so you can see where the pins would have been. And then um, sometimes you'll find the little... Um, the little stones that they would have eaten, little mm. stomach stones, and just like it's full circle. It's like here you have the little structures, you've got like pictures and art, and then you have uh, parts of the turkey still there. It's like oh man, full circle. That's something that's disappointing with my site is because um, my site is like a cave. Like I don't necessarily have that kind of. Um, like connections to really make. I know there's some uh, artifacts that they found, but mostly just ironwork and bronze work and stuff, but nothing as cool as what that sounds like. Well, it's not, I mean, and I'm sure too, with it being such, um, I'm guessing a much uh, wetter environment, it'd be hard for like art, like for paint to be sticking on the cave walls, probably, maybe. Yeah, well, there's one cave that I'm working in that has like, carvings which are uh, oh that would be so cool so yeah it's a very uh weird site let me tell you (laughs) (laughs) well and i do know they've also used um archaeology going back to tom mcgovern um, and kind of the arctic because that's my wheelhouse um they were doing some analysis of important sites i believe it was in iceland although i haven't read the paper in like a year and a half um, <laughs> where they found there were issues with, in Iceland where any um, think cattle that you have in Iceland were brought over because yeah. Iceland had, I think it was like the um, Arctic fox or the Arctic hare was the only mammal on Iceland mm-hmm. when the, oh, the wow. Vikings arrived. So you know that any skulls from, from cattle are cattle that were brought over and that as they destroyed the environment there, there were fewer and fewer <laughs> cattle. So their skulls became uh, more and more high-status items. And the skulls themselves? The skulls themselves transcend huh. being just part of an animal that was butchered, and they become objects and artifacts in and of themselves. And they use the placement of several skulls around a particular settlement to talk about um, why that was likely a high-status settlement and which buildings were more important by the presence of um, these status items, essentially. Yeah, and that reusing of animal uh, remains, I think, is something really important to zooarchaeology, not not just with, like, belief systems, uh, which is actually something that I deal with um, in my site, but also just, like, utilizing them just for everyday work things, you know, you see worked bone, um, things like that, uh, antler combs, all that kind of cool stuff, so it's, there's just so much that it's, it's almost like, um, I hate to use like a metaphor from Shrek, but it's like an onion <laughs> and it has all these layers. I hate myself. That was bad. <laughs> no, don't. Don't at all. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I'm loving it. Uh, one of our previous podcasts, we definitely spent a good solid 10 minutes talking about Moana. So, you know. The movie was so good. It's <laughs> such a good uh, movie. It was. It was a very it really was. Yeah. Yeah, they just translated it into uh, Maori language. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, they did. I saw that. That's awesome. I hadn't heard that. That's amazing. And it sounds really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) And Shrek. Good movies. (laughs) Right? I love being on the Moana and Shrek podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Welcome. And if if Pixar and Disney would like to give us sponsorship, we'd be very happy. 
We're available. Also, there was a podcast where we produced a bunch of shark facts. So Discovery, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Shark Week. We could get in (laughs) on that. (laughs) (laughs) Some good ideas. (laughs) Right? Future episodes. Uh, Anyways, speaking of the future, we are about at the end of our first 20-minute segments. We'll... um, Go away for a quick break, and when we come back, Alex, I'd love to hear more about some of the specific research that you're doing. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been discussing zoo archaeology with guest Alex Fitzpatrick. Last um, segment, we talked a little bit about what zoo archaeology is, what it's used for. We bashed on pottery a lot. <laughs> don't worry, we don't hate you. Um, so I actually some, Right? I went to some fascinating pottery sessions at the last SHAs. Um, it has its place. It's just not on this episode. <laughs> I told the head of my department um, in my undergraduate that I hated pottery after he told me he wrote a book about pottery. So I'm very steadfast in my beliefs. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we also talked a little bit about Shrek and Super Moana. Important. Great analysis. Films, yeah. Good time. So my PhD Definitely. project is about putting an archaeological th- uh, framework on Shrek. <laughs> Wait, can we? Yeah, right? (laughs) You know, that just sounds fascinating. We've actually talked about doing an archaeology of the movies episode before, and I I really think we should. I'm sure we can throw in, like, look at the the cranial structure of Shrek. Well, I mean, if you look at narrative as, (laughs) like, its Uh, own type of archaeological excavation in terms of narratively digging through the, like, you know, the plot and things like that, and, you know... I don't know. I just hurt my head. Done. Right, sold. You're on the show. <laughs> next week. Let me we'll... it, Mom. Um, no, next week we will not. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Watch five movies that between now. That hurt my head trying to say, like... <laughs> right. Um, anyways, Alex, your, your PhD project is not on Shrek, as awesome as that would be. Oh, um, Hannah. So what is it on? It is on uh, something that's not as cool as Shrek, and I'm talking about uh, ritual caves. I think that sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, and these are So, Scotland. yeah, I'm going to try yeah. to do as much non-disservice to the project as I can. Um, not like my supervisors are listening to this. Um, they have other things to do, like actually excavate. Um, so, the uh, sites that... Ever. What are you talking about? True. Our podcast is the most important. True. My supervisors are like working on five <laughs> different projects right now. I have no idea how they have time to do anything. Um, but yeah, so my project. Um, I'm currently working on uh, two cave sites uh, that make up part of the Kelsey Caves, which is up in Scotland. Um, so it's they're really like I mean, there's no other way to say it. They're really weird sites, like in a fun um, way. The I mean, if you think juvenile decapitation's fun, then, like, yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah. So we think it's part of a... We, uh, you know, the people who are working on it. uh, We think it's a mortuary complex. So there's a lot of human remains there, um, which is not necessarily the focus of my research, but it's cool to talk about. Um, So the Bronze Age remains um, in Sculptor's Cave, uh, which is the more famous cave, they are just juvenile heads. Like, there's just a lot of juvenile heads that have been placed in, near the entrances. Huh. Um, and then in the Roman Iron Age, apparently, there were there's a lot of instances of decapitations. Mm. So, like, kind of weird. Uh, but I'm looking at the animal bone, which is not necessarily as flashy as that, but still kind of weird. Um... Yeah, so we actually just opened up, uh, as part of my pilot study for okay. my PhD project, 
We opened up uh, a new chamber in the back of the cave. So they had all these unstratified animal bones and they gave them to me to look at. And we're just finding such weird, like the way I keep telling people about it, it's like, it's a really crappy petting zoo. <laughs> like that's the only way I can describe it. Cause we've got, so like, you know, it's kind of on the coast of Scotland. So, you know, if I say we're finding a bit of fish, you know, that doesn't sound that weird. We're finding some seabird remains. That's not weird. We're finding a seal kind of weird, I think, especially all the way back in this cave. We're finding a lot of young sheep bones. Mm -hmm. That's a little weird, too. Uh, we think we might have a wolf. Huh. Uh, we have some extinct birds, and we have an eel, I believe. Um, we have a cat and a bunch of hares, so it's kind of weird. And there's no way the animals could have gotten back there themselves. Well, some of them, like, you know, the wolf, well, the possible wolf, I can't actually say it's a wolf because we're not entirely sure and I'm probably going to get it uh, tested for, you know, uh, to see what it is. But um, stuff like the possible wolf and the cat, I can understand, you know, this could be like kind of a den, but like there's so many young sheep mm -hmm. and um, even my supervisor made a point of saying like they wouldn't just wander all into as deep of the cave. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot going on. There's some butchery as well, which means that there's human activity going on in this cave. Mm -hmm. I mean, I uh, one of my supervisors, uh, Julie Bond, who's an amazing zooarchaeologist, an environmental archaeologist, uh, who also works up in uh, the North Atlantic a lot, she was even like, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's like a lot of strange stuff happening. And just to... so. To wrap my brain around, so you're saying it's um it's mostly like for you're seeing so, mortuary practices. So people weren't living in the cave itself as like its own little habitation. Like they were living away from the caves, and so it wouldn't be just like everyday butchery. You know, like I'm gonna butcher a lamb for dinner type of thing. It's kind of a weird spot to be doing that. Yeah, like I haven't looked at the human remains, and from what I understand, I think there's also issues with the human remains, at least from Sculptor's Cave, because I believe earlier excavations might have just kind of lost the bodies. Oh no. So, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, me just looking at archival information to like mm -hmm. extrapolate for my project, but um, I mean, all the human remains look like mortuary type um, remains, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think there's much by way of any domestic looking artifacts. Like mm -hmm. I said, I think there's some ironwork, but that's about it. So yeah, again, it, the, there is like, from what I've seen so far, and this is very preliminary uh, research, um, from what I see so far, there's a bit of butchery looking things, definitely signs of human activity. There's a lot of burnt bone, but otherwise it just seems like a really random collection of animals. Huh. It does. It does sound weird. It's like, what? What are they doing there? What were the? Why were they butchering them? Huh? Right. Would it be possible? Because you said you're finding a lot of really young sheep. And granted, not a zoo archaeologist, but my understanding is that butchering really young animals um, isn't the most efficient, or isn't necessarily the most efficient use of them. Uh, because, like, if sheep can give wool, you're basically saying that this animal is not going to be useful for wool for the rest of its life. Um, has any research been done? Are you thinking at all that the use of the sheep that have been placed there may be related to the use of the human skeletons? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's kind of a good, in zooarchaeology, it's kind of a good rule of thumb, although obviously not the case for everything, that, you know, uh, there's a bit of a flag going up if you're starting to find young animals being butchered. Um, Actually, a lot of the young animals have also have signs of gnawing. <laughs> hmm. um, so the way the gnawing kind of looks is that I've been finding evidence of a, a canine gnawing, which might be like that wolf, that wolf slash dog thing that we have, and um, hmm. some uh, evidence of a cat gnawing. So my pitch is that a cat and a wolf are living as friends in this cave, <laughs> and all right bringing food and having a really good time. And apparently this is not a good thesis. 
I don't know. I don't really understand why people rejected it, but I don't know. I think I think it sounds like a, I mean some possibilities for a kids program too. With like the wolf and the cat are best friends, and like they're stealing sheep from the community, <laughs> and they're just like, hey, we're hungry. You want to share a, a leg bone? Hey. The other idea I have is the idea that like. <laughs> These people, there's something living in the back of this cave. These people don't know what it is. And they're just like giving it sheep as a way to like, just don't eat us. So again, not apparently not like the greatest uh, theory I've posted out there for my supervisors. But, you know, I'm just going to keep slaying them until they agree to something. (laughs) Me too. I mean, who doesn't love the YouTube videos with like, you know, it's like an elephant and a puppy and, uh, you know, a lion. I spend so much time in the office not writing and instead on Instagram looking at (laughs) animal accounts because they're the absolute best. And I just love it. Like, how can I read about, you know, taphonomic uh, indicators when I could be staring at a really cute dog for like an hour. Yeah, it's like I could be working on lectures or watching videos of Fiona the baby hippo. Oh my god, I love Fiona the baby hippo. We're the same person. She's the best. I also just saw a hippo skull for the first time and it was nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You would be like... That's like the greatest thing about going to zoo archaeology is sometimes you just see animals, what they look like as skeletons, and you're just like, that doesn't make sense. Well, I believe that. So I have to ask, um, have you ever, for the work you've been doing, um, had to actually like process then like modern collections so that you have some like a type collection? I had to do that when I was at I just like one day and it was the grossest thing ever um, when I was an intern and like we had to like boil like deer bones in like this like laundry detergent or something i had to like scrape off squishy bits and stuff like <laughs> that seems like the worst part of archaeology um, possible it's like creating a type collection i um do it for fun i don't have Ugh. to do it but i've started my own because <laughs> You know, a lot of my zooarchaeology <laughs> friends have amazing, like, collect their own amazing uh, reference collections, and I really wanted to start my own, so I, <laughs> I've started doing that. I mean, most of my stuff is birds, but I have, um, what mm-hmm. do I have in there? I think I have some mice, maybe? Some of them were gifted from other friends who have, like, big collections. But one of my favorite things is someone I met uh, through Twitter. Her name's Allison. Uh, I think she just handed in her PhD. Um, and she's been working on the chicken project over here in the UK. Uh, she sent me a DM one day and was like, Hey, um, I'm cleaning out my fridge. Do you want a chicken? And I was like, yeah, just send, yeah, send me a chicken. So she sent, mailed me a dead, like a whole dead chicken that I processed myself. Uh, like feathers and everything. I, I had to, like, I can't do it again. I had to like deep, had to, like deep pluck it or whatever the word is for that. Um, <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> can't use my crock pot anymore, but you know, other than that. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, have you found like with the creation of your type collection like applicable to the the stuff you're working on now? Like, have you been able to um, get like a wolf skeleton or the I don't know how many bones are in an eel, but uh, <laughs> are there lots of bones in eels? Oh. Uh, stuff like that that you're working on that you can have like a comparative anal- like analysis, or does the university have a pretty big type collection? So the university does have uh, a, a reference collection. It's not like the biggest one. So actually, it's one of the the best things about being on Twitter um, and just being connected to all these other zooarchaeologists is that occasionally, if I don't have um, a bone, I can just tweet out and be like, hey, does anyone have, like, we have it, one of the other assemblages I'm working on, uh, we have this really big mandible that at first glance I was like, okay, that's a cow. And then looked at it again, realized it was like a deer shaped mandible. So it's a real, it's either a really big red deer or an elk or something. So I just tweeted out like, hey, does anyone have like elk or reindeer mandibles? And then I had people just sending me pictures. Which is, like, really nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, the zoo archaeology community is great. That's amazing. Um, I am not a zoo archaeologist, but I, I do think as a bioarchaeologist, it's good to, like, have 
some sort of reference collection so that I can say, this is not human. And I'm pretty good at like, (laughs) oh, this is fish. This definitely swims. Weird wavy bones. (laughs) Um, You know, but but being able to say beyond that, because sometimes I'm can be on a crew and I'm the only person with osteological training. So yes, I'm a a bioarchaeologist. I work with human remains, but having some sort of knowledge of animal remains is great. I used to work in Louisiana. I can tell you, you know, alligator, crocodile, and <laughs> sheep and goat and cow and horse and kind of sometimes. Um, that's about it. But I have a friend who um, does a lot of hunting uh, and like processes his own meat and, you know, uses it all and um, uses antlers for like knife handles and things. He's great. Um, but I saw him recently and I was like, you know, the next time you like have bones that you don't know what to do with. You have my address, right? And then I don't have to clean them or anything because he's butchered and cleaned and taken the meat off. And, you know, I just get presented with a mostly clean skeleton. This is the thing is, like, I really want to have a nice reference collection. But, like, I live in a studio flat right now, so I do not have room for, like, a lot of bones. It's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm, I'm thinking about moving at the end of this year, and my boyfriend already said, he's like, if you're going to process stuff, you're going to have to do it outside or get a specific room for it. You're not mm-hmm. doing it in our kitchen. It really does stink. Like, I've never smelled anything like that in my life and it had gotten under, like, my yeah. fingernails, and I would, like, fall asleep with, like, you know, my head on my hand, or I'd move my hand and be like, oh, God, you know, it's just... Never. Yeah, never it's not. Again. It's not the <laughs> nicest smell. Like really, the best way to do this kind of stuff is either to have like those beetles yeah. to do it, which I don't process enough to have those beetles, mm-hmm. or like to just have some space outside and like bury it for a bit. <laughs> like that's probably the less smelly way to do it. Near an yeah, ant, but I live, of course, on top of a donut store, so I don't necessarily yeah. think I have the space to bury a bunch of dead animals. Sounds delicious, right. though. Oh, I've never been to the donut store, so uh, I don't know. Huh. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just scared of them because uh, I've been using their dumpster for the past two years, and I don't think they like that, so I'm just scared. They yelled at me once, and then I just kept doing it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Hey. Gotta do what you gotta do. The things we do for our trade. Um, but I know it's actually also really, really important. I remember one of our early episodes where we talked about things you can do in archaeology besides dig with um, April Besaw. Yeah, I love April. Who also does some Zoark, I believe. But she talked about the importance that if you're going to do Zoark to have your own reference collection, because if you want to do consulting yeah. work, not necessarily be a professor, I don't know what your goals for your you know, career track are. But if you want to do consultancy work, you know, you kind of have to have your own reference collection and to start putting it together early and often whenever you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And at CRM firms, I mean, there are so many that have faunal analysts and um, paleoethnobotanists and so forth. So, yeah, it's a great skill. Definitely. Well, and you can also use it to, mm-hmm. to teach students. I had a professor who had a backyard and whenever he barbecued or cooked a T-bone or had a chicken or whatever... He would just kind of throw them in his backyard. And granted, it wasn't a very nice backyard. It didn't have flowers or anything. But um, when he, you know, had an archaeology class, if they didn't have, a, you know, a field school or an excavation, um, he would have people come over to his backyard and, you know, he would dump everything in one quadrant for six months and then the next six months would be in the next quadrant. So he just like had this rotating backyard of, I have thrown animal bones from things that I ate in my backyard. Now come excavate it and tell me what you found. Have that's fun. such a good way to teach though. Like that's awesome. It was amazing. Oh, I wish I had like, like my undergrad like studies were so devoid of any practical training which is why I ended up moving here. I just really wish I had stuff like that. But I was in the classics, which was classical archaeology. At least the way I was taught was basically art history. So, yeah. A lot of it tends to be. Yeah, again, just sick of those pottery. I hate to bring it up again, but I really just can't. Just hate it so much. <laughs> Pottery's cool, man. Pottery's cool. <laughs> 
Listen, I will not change my anti-pottery stands. Okay? To each their own. I'm stumped, like anti-potteryist. I'm not a fan of We're it. All entitled to our opinion. <laughs> Just some of us have correct opinions, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. I'm gonna go cry. I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you interested in hosting your own show on the Archaeology Podcast Network? If you're passionate about a topic and can come up with at least 10 episodes right now, I'll wait, then contact me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We'll go over your options and what we can do for you. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't let your passions sit in a file cabinet or on a dusty bookshelf. Broadcast them to the world with a podcast today. Back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been discussing zoo archaeology, what it is, what it's used for, and some of the projects that Alex Fitzpatrick is associated with, um, in which she uses zoo archaeology um, to investigate the past. We've talked a lot about positives um, and why we like zoo archaeology so far, but as with everything archaeological, there are limitations. Are there particular limitations or particular drawbacks to doing zoo archaeology, Alex? Um, so fish bones were put here by the devil, and they are here as a punishment <laughs> for anyone who goes into zoo archaeology. Um, I did my master's dissertation on fish bones, which sounded like a good idea at the time. Uh, I should have realized the warning signs when even my supervisor was like, I don't know that much about fish bones, so there'll be a point where you're kind of on your own. Um, <laughs> no joke, people in my department used to stop by the lab just to see what I was doing because they'd be like, oh, I heard you're working on fish bones. Why? <laughs> so it was me and like 3,000 fish bones for three months uh, in the oh, summer man. of 2016. Uh, Where were the at bones one point, from? They're, from? they're from the Orkneys and um, they were so small, some of the vertebrae. At one point I had tweezers and I was using them to look at each individual vertebrae and I like breathed a little bit too hard and they just went flying across the lab table. It was great. I loved it. <laughs> it was just, at that point I was just like, Nemo, that just sounds- stop. <laughs> Terrible. And also, like, no one uses the fish collection at my at the university apparently, because I went to open up one of the fish uh, bones that we have to compare them, and the smell was so fresh. It was like a very oh, fresh wow. fish. It smelled great. Mm. Definitely didn't gag a lot. Didn't eat fish for a while after that. It was not pleasant. I know a lot about fish bones, but man, I don't. I just don't like them so much. Yeah. What made you want to study them for your master's? Um, it was just because, like, at that time, when I did my master's, which I think is the case for a lot of people, that's when I realized that I wanted zoo archaeology to be my specialization. So, you know, I was asking around, mm-hmm. like, what kind of zoo art projects do you have? And the only thing they really had, they were like, well, no one's really looked at the fish bones. And now I know why no one looked at the fish bones, because it's terrible and ah. you shouldn't look at fish bones. Like, it, it was very difficult not to write my thesis about, like, you can find a lot of stuff uh, out from fish bones, but everyone should just throw them in the bin because it's just awful. Like, I did isotopic analysis on these fish bones. I did scanning electron microscopy on these fish bones. These fish bones were paid way more, too much attention to, like, for sure. <laughs> so no startling discoveries from them. I mean, like, it was interesting in terms of, so the reason why I did this project was because um, there's this weird thing in the in Britain, in the Iron Age, where, like, fishing kind of just stops. Like, there's not as much um, archaeological evidence for fishing, so, but, like, places up north, like the Orkneys, we keep finding, like, large amounts of fish bones still in the assemblages, so I was just looking at it to see uh, exactly what these fish were doing, and unsurprisingly, they were just fished from the sea by people. <laughs> huh. So I wrote a, I wrote a very long dissertation uh, just saying people fished sometimes in the Iron Age. (laughs) Not all the time, but sometimes. (laughs) And never again. (laughs) I got my master's degree. Yeah, but I got my master's (laughs) degree, so it's fine. Like, that's all that mattered really at that point. (laughs) So I hate fish and I hate pottery. Um, Is there anything else I can talk about? (laughs) 
So it sounds like even if you really hated fish bones, and I don't blame you because when I think about, you know, eating fish and the tiny bones that you find, that does not sound like a fun uh, afternoon to me. <laughs> um, but it sounds like you've at least got some good training on, you know, like isotopes and um, scanning microscopy. Is that what you said you were yeah, using? Like just really good training that, you know, fortunately is a lot of stuff that I'm going to be using my uh, PhD uh, research as well. So it worked out <laughs> to begin with. But um, I mean, as much as I don't like fish bones, the project was really good because it just showed, you know, the kind of analytical methods you can use on faunal bones and you can just get so much information out of that, even if they're annoying mm-hmm. little fish bones. So. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, we've all been there, right? Yeah. I don't know how my friends who do pollen like deal with it. So, Alex, it sounds like you also do some really interesting archaeology-related things outside of your PhD. Do you want to talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, so um, last year, around this time, um, okay, just to get slightly dark for a second, um, I had a really bad uh, like mental breakdown and was in a really bad place around this time last year. Uh, once I got myself sorted and got you know medicated and was seeing uh, therapists and things like that, um, I kind of like decided to revamp all of my work ethic. So I began creating social media accounts. I was on Twitter. I started my blog um, and all these other things. And just since then, I've just been like writing for different websites. And uh, I run social media for Crestina, which is a Swedish-based uh, science website. I've been doing a lot of SciComm-related things. Uh, I guess that's like. I've been probably spending like 50% of my time now doing that and then the rest of my time doing my PhD work. What is SciComm? Um, so it's like science communication. Um, it's hashtag SciComm, really. Um, it's like really big on like <laughs> platforms like Twitter nowadays, just like being really good at, you know, kind of like using your social media presence to showcase more of your science, like the, your science side. Um, I mean, I don't really know the history of it. I th- from what I can see, it seems like it came out of a lot of scientists just trying to, like, break down those barriers of, like, science isn't this weird, like, high and mighty, mysterious thing. You know, we're all just normal people doing these mm-hmm. kind of things, and we just want to, like, showcase it to, like, the general public. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's how I use it. Like, I just tweet and Instagram pictures of my dead bones for people who want to see. I think that's wonderful. Seriously, I think it's wonderful because I do. You're totally right. There is that barrier there that we're somehow like this mysterious field. Like, oh, archaeology. I could never um, be a part of that. And so, yeah. I mean, heck, this is why we have the podcast and and everything. And I and I think Chelsea wants to jump in on that too. Yeah, I do. So I actually recently found out um, there's a a group that was just created that's called Request a Woman Scientist. Maybe that is all about science communication. Um, coming from women because most experts who are interviewed in um, newspaper articles, journals, that sort of thing are men. Hmm. So we, uh, there's a group of women who decided that they wanted to see more representation of the fact that women could be scientists. So they put together a website called Request a Woman Scientist. And if you're female and a scientist, you can go and sign up and tell them what your area of expertise is. And then it's a resource for people who are blogging or journalists or, um, you know, TV commentators, whoever, to go and, and talk to the people who are actually doing the work. So that's a, a SciComm initiative that I'm super, super into. That sounds like a wonderful program. Yeah, I actually just signed up for that. Um, um, and there's also, uh, I think it's called Diverse... What's it? It's like called Diverse Opinions or something like that. There's uh, another source, maybe Diverse Sources. It's a website where they're looking for people who are, you know, uh, female identifying, uh, LGBTQ, um, you know, uh, people who are not white um, to like put their name and their information down so that people can, instead of turning to, you know, a cis white male scientist, there's all these other uh, scientists that they can reach out to. And that's another initiative that's doing similar kind of work. 
that's really cool that there are all these opportunities to try to showcase what there there there's more to archaeology than yeah your stereotypical old white guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's definitely like um there's definitely a lot of like there's uh, a Twitter account that's uh, minority in STEM that's also doing a lot of work in terms of amplifying these kind of voices and I think that's like probably one of the best things about SciComm these days especially through social media is that we can amplify these voices um, mm-hmm. and just like everyone and just like people in general I mean people who are just in like small fields like mine like not many people know zooarchaeology is like it's a field in of itself so it's kind of nice to like showcase that um mm-hmm. like i have a, a bunch of followers on twitter who kind of joined and have told me like i didn't know what zooarchaeology was and i just started following you so that's always like a really nice compliment to get from people that's awesome and so would you say to other archaeologists other zooarchaeologists that this is a trend that we should all kind of be I don't know, trying out, trying to get our field out there more. Is there any advice you would give into doing that? Um, I feel like like I was just having this talk actually with a friend uh, earlier today because um, there's this big debate um, in SciComm of, you know, whether should scientists be communicators? Uh, should we have people specifically hired to do science communication? And that's more on a, you know, a formal level. But like informally, I think there's nothing wrong or there's there's like no downside really to just being you know social and out there i think it it's a good way to you know showcase your work to show like your human side to people and also just to you know kind of be an inspiration to other people like there's plenty of you know teens and kids out there on social media who might come across your posts and become you know inspired to go and do go into that you know stem field Excellent. Well, I think we could probably go into closing thoughts. Um, Alex, uh, love having you on here. Do you have any closing thoughts about zooarchaeology? Anything else you want to share with us today? Uh, yeah, um, I just want to, you know, push out there that I, zooarchaeology is really important. Um, animal bones are super important. There's so much you can do with zooarchaeology. Um, and also pottery is the worst, and I hate it. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much for joining Chelsea and I on this podcast. We absolutely loved having you, and we hope you can join us again. Yeah, definitely. This was so much fun. And for our listeners, we will be um, putting up Alex's uh, Twitter information and um, blog and whatnot, so you can check out her work. Um, You can check us out at Women Archies on Twitter. We also have our blog, uh, Women in Archaeology. um, I think it's at WordPress, or it's the other way around, womeninarchaeology.wordpress.com. And you can also email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Well, that's it for today. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Links to the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes. You can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or at Women Archies on Twitter. Please like, share, and subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Support the show in the APN at www.archpodnet.com members. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.